Hi, welcome to True Creeps, where the stories are true and the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore to the possibly plausible paranormal, to horrifying history, to tense and terrible true crime, and everything else that goes bump in the night. We're your hosts, Amanda, and I'm Lindsay, and we want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. We are talking about Lori Vallow and her trial today. And we have a lot of major things that have happened. And what we're going to discuss is specifically what happened in the trial from April 18th to the 28th, which is today when we're recording. As we have with our updates, we're going to focus more on the new information as well as the testimony that we thought was very compelling during these dates. For daily updates, though, if you want to follow along with us, we will be posting on our social media, which all of our handles will be in the outro. And each night, we're going through all the testimony that happened that day. We really do our best to synthesize all of the information because we are talking about hours and hours of testimony that is often very technical and very grim. I think that it's helpful to get like a bite-sized look of the case and like what's going on today. Yes. And please excuse my voice. Allergy time in Arizona is real. So let's start with who's testified. We're just going to go through a list. So we continued hearing from Zulema Pastenas. We heard from Colby Ryan, Samantha William, Summer Shiflet, Lori's sister, April Raymond, Sydney Shank, Josh Wilson, Wynn Hill, Dr. Garth Warren, Spencer Cook, Kelsey Harris, Shanna Miller, and from the Fremont County Coroner's Office, we heard from Cammie Wilmore and Brenda Dye. From Fremont County Sheriff's Office, we heard from Detective Bruce Mattingly, Detective Coulter Cannon, Deputy Helena Kayakamanu, and Christina West. And then from the ISP lab, which is the DNA lab, we heard from David Sinzerbo, Riley Nolan, Catherine Dace, Tara Martinez. From the Rexburg Police Department in Idaho, we heard from Detective Chuck Consitis, Detective David Stubbs, former Detective Rich Schmidt, and Officer Alyssa Greenhouse. From the Chandler Police Department in Arizona, we heard from Detective Sandra Inclan, Detective Ariel Werther, and Sergeant Nathan Moffat. And then from the FBI, we heard from Michael Douglas, Special Agent Mark Sari, Benjamin Dean, Nick Balance, Nicole Heedman. Steve Daniels, Dr. Angie Christensen, and Douglas Hapaska. So just a few people we have heard from. We're going to talk about a lot of them today. We are not going to talk about every single testimony. We're going to talk about what we learned. Just want to reinforce that because it's a lot of people and this isn't going to be 17 hours long. So we also want to note that Summer Shiflet was in court as well as Laurie's uncle and their cousin. Just as an interesting note, Summer sat in the prosecution's reserve seats because she is Tylee's representative. One of the things that we really learned more about was the digital investigation into Alex, Lori, and Chad. There was a significant amount of testimony that discussed how many warrants there were, how they were executed, which searches went with which warrant, and then how they did the searches and how they analyzed data. Because we learned a good amount of information and that methodology is very intricate, we're not going to focus on the methodology. We're going to focus on what we learned. So investigators requested phone companies perform a live tap and trace and search of phone numbers that were associated with Lori, Alex, and Tylee to try to find their location when the kids were missing. And this is how Lori was found in Hawaii because they were able to trace two phones to Kauai. Additionally, during the investigation, every online account that was associated with Tylee, Lori, Chad, and Alex was combed over. And we've learned a lot of information from that. And by accounts, we mean things like iCloud, Google, Amazon, Fitbit, Verizon, and just anything you could have. But some of the info that we learned was Laurie had an absurd amount of cell phones, 18. That's wild. I can't imagine. I'm stressed just thinking about it. And as a note, those phones were used at different times. So they were activated, not all at the same time. And then some of them were used to only talk to a few people or in at least one instance, one person, because she had one phone that was just to talk to Chad. So strange. And I can't even keep track of things on my one phone. Like I can't imagine trying to be like, this phone is for this. I guess what I find just purely confounding is, did they think that this meant that law enforcement wasn't going to be able to trace them? 
No, because remember, they saved their phones in different names. Yes. They did a, a lot of defensive maneuvers that aren't exactly difficult to crack. No, not at all. Because it's like they would log on to their common accounts on these phones. Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. I, I was talking to my husband about it and I was like, but then they just use their same <laughs> or they'd use the same email. Yeah. So like, obviously, Google's going to be like, this is the same person. Yeah. So they've been dealing with this absurd, complicated communication for literally no reason. Remember, we are dealing with Chad to ball. We really are. So one thing we wanted to talk about because we thought it was interesting fascinating, I don't kind of silly at some points, is their internet searches. And some are very grim, I will say that. So Lori searched on May 7th of 2019 for Malachite. On July 21st of 2019, this one breaks my heart, she searched the Gerber life policy, life insurance for children, and the grow up plan. Ew. Makes my skin crawl. On July 26th of 2019, she searched Phoenix Pet Service, Craigslist, Cell Service Dog, Little Angels Service Dogs, Service Dogs for Sale, Offerings Phoenix. That's when she was obviously getting rid of the dog. On August 25th of 2019, she searched Wedding Bands Made of Malachite. She's obsessed. She is. She is. On September 20th of 2019, she searched Kennedy Elementary, Rexburg, Idaho, phone number, and Define Possess. On September 24th, she searched Kennedy Elementary Rexburg, Idaho phone number. September 30th of 2019, she searched how to get the back seat out of my Jeep Wrangler. Jeep Wrangler JK rear seat removal, how to DIY on YouTube. On October 2nd of 2019, she searched Gilbert, Arizona news. On October 22nd, 2019, she searched wedding dresses, wedding dresses in Kauai, because there's only certain dresses that you could wear in Kauai. Of course. Specific. So let's go to Chad's searches. And this is the one where it kind of made me laugh. There, there's a funny one coming. But the first one was January 31st of 2019. And he searched Ned Schneider, Louisiana obituary 1997. I wonder if this is where they got the name of like, who possessed Charles, if they just made it up. First off, what we're talking about is Ned Schneider, if, if you don't recall, is the first dark spirit that inhabited Charles. But I would also wonder like, if he was just like guessing a name. I mean, it is interesting that he's putting like that name, a place and a year like that's that's pretty specific. And so I'm intrigued as to like how he got to that. I wonder if this is like what comes up. You know how when you're starting to search something? <gasps> oh, and it yeah. Fills? It does. Like, when Lori did her Jeep Wrangler, I doubt she like yeah, she was like this DIY, YouTube video. You know? Yeah. 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 So this is the one that made me laugh. March 3rd of 2019, he searched June 26th, star sign, are Cancer and Leo compatible? May 4th, sign, Taurus and Leo compatible. It's like a 14-year-old girl's search history. Yeah, that is pretty bizarre. You're already obsessing over her black leggings and you're now you're seeing if you're compatible. Yeah. yeah. Maybe he's having doubts. On June 1st, 2019, he searched for Hiplos. On July 9th of 2019... When you surprise someone with accusations. I don't understand what he was Googling there. I don't know. He probably didn't know. On September 28th, 2019, this one is also a little creepy when you think about it. Yeah. He searched SSW wind, which is South Southwest wind. And then he looked up, what is the definition of SSW wind? As did I, because I had no idea. And then lastly, October 8th of 2019, he searched Rhode Island area code which we know he ended up getting a number with a Rhode Island area code. So we're going to talk now about some of the communications. Lori sent an email asking her accountant how to forward tax returns to her new address on September 9th of 2019. Detective Kunsaitis said this would have been, quote, hours after we believe Tylee was buried in the backyard, where, again, she's only thinking about how can she obtain money, which is disgusting and horrible. Mm-hmm. On the day Tammy was shot at, which was October 9th, Chad got a new phone and communicated with Lori on it. Alex's phone was in the vicinity of Chad's residence on October 9th, from 4.47 p.m. to 4.56 p.m. Chad, Lori, and Alex texted each other that night. Hmm. So financial accounts for Tylee, Lori, Alex, and Chad were also reviewed. In August of 2019, Lori changed her life insurance beneficiary. 
attempted to order a wedding band, and switched the account that received Hailey's monthly social security benefits to another account. All of Chad's flights to see Lori were purchased by accounts associated with Lori, not Chad. So he didn't do his travel arrangements. Well, also, Tammy couldn't find them. Exactly. Yeah. Right after Tammy died, Chad purchased Knott's Berry Farm tickets, which, I don't know, taking his family to celebrate in California was just so weird. Yeah. Although I did see some memes, I think I sent you one of them, where people are like, if you're going to take your family to California, you're going to go to Knott's Berry Farm instead of any of the cool places. Yeah, fair. Right? I mean, I, I like Knott's Berry Farm, but Disneyland's significantly better. Chad filed life insurance claims for Tammy right after she died, and the funds were deposited into his account on November 1st and November 16th. The day that JJ and Tylee's bodies were found, Chad transferred $24,000 from his bank account to three of his children. Those were done in $8,000 transactions. Lindsay and I kind of discussed that, and I was like, that's interesting. And then we're like, oh, it was probably bail money. He was just like, help me later. Josh Wilson discussed JJ's enrollment dates at Kennedy Elementary and how Lori changed her story about where JJ would be going next. And it was weird because she said one thing and then switched it later. Windhill checked various names that Tylee may have used for her enrollment and found no records of her enrolling or attending BYU-Idaho. This is significant because that's what Lori was saying is like, she was there. He checked everything, any last name that Tylee could have possibly used, and there was never an enrollment. Samantha William, Tammy's sister, testified. And she said that in 2019, something seemed off with Tammy and Chad when they stayed with Samantha. And Chad, who was friends with Samantha's husband, wouldn't really talk to him, which was out of the norm. And that the summer before Tammy died, Chad seemed, quote, more distant and was, quote, very different. In July of 2019, Tammy showed up to Samantha's house unannounced with a birthday present. She gave it to her on her porch and stayed about 20 minutes. But Chad was in the car the whole time. He just didn't even get out, which is really weird. Yeah. Samantha also testified that Tammy had had depression for a few years before she died. And her family knew about it and they had talked about it. But Samantha says that Tammy was very healthy when she saw her the two weeks before. And she discussed that Tammy was pretty active, too. She was taking a clogging class and she was training for a race. And when she had come to visit her those two weeks before, she came without Chad, which was also pretty out of the norm. Yeah, because she didn't like traveling alone. Yeah, which I mean, okay, fair. So this this next part is going to be a direct quote from what Samantha said. Chad called me the morning that she passed away. He told me that she had been really sick and that she had been coughing all night. And she had gotten up with a coughing fit around midnight, one o'clock, and had gone back to sleep. And he was awakened by her that morning when she rolled out of bed dead. And we shared that because we're like, one cannot roll out of bed dead. Rolled out of bed dead. It doesn't really make any sense. No. When we get to how the first responders found her, it makes a little bit more sense, but it's still a strange way of phrasing it. It is. And it still doesn't make too much sense. A whole lot of sense. Yeah. There, there's a lot of questions. There's more questions than answers. Yeah. So when Samantha learned that Chad had gotten married just two weeks after Tammy died, she obviously asked Chad about it. And he had told her that he married Lori Ryan and that her last husband had died of a heart attack and that they were both grieving. So she then obviously Googled Lori and she found articles from Arizona that talked about Charles's shooting. Also, Samantha asked Chad, please tell me about this woman you replaced my sister with. And he said that Laurie had had a hard life and they were trying to stay away from the stigma of what had happened to her. Now, remember that Tammy was the breadwinner in Tammy and Chad's marriage. And so when Samantha asked Chad how he was going to support himself without Tammy, he told her that he had life insurance money and that his new spouse had lots of money. She did. Ugh. When she was Googling Laurie, she saw an obituary for Charles and Kay had commented about JJ. So that is how Samantha learned about JJ and that Laurie was his adoptive mother. So then, of course, she asks like, oh, are you going to be raising the children together? And he said, no, there's no children and that they were going to be empty nesters. Ew. So weird. Yes. Amanda just talked about Knott's Berry Farm. 
We also learned from Samantha's testimony that that trip to Knott's Berry Farm wasn't just Chad and his kids. Laurie also went. Mm-hmm. And then the kids told Samantha about it. And then also just a sweet moment. As Samantha and her husband were leaving the courtroom, Kay and Larry reached out for a hug. Yeah. They're all grieving and victims in this. It's really sad. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. So we're going to talk a lot about Tammy's death because a lot of the testimony was from various people saying the state of her health, how she was found, everything. So as we mentioned before, she was in a clogging class. I hadn't really known that before. I knew she was training for the race, but I didn't know about all of her exercises that she had been doing too. Yeah. But the clogging class that Samantha had mentioned was a 60-minute like river dance type class, and it was very fast-paced. Have you ever tried to do that just like for fun, just like the dance? Oh, no, I know I can't. You winded like a second. Like, I mean, I do. I'm not very athletic. It's an intense, like, jumping kind of dance. Oh, yeah. And it's 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. Like, an hour of just that. Yeah. Through testimony, we discovered that Tammy had never fallen behind in this class. And she even took a high-intensity fitness class. And she had no limitations. She kept up. She did well. So, her being, you know, sickly and not doing so well doesn't really make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Also, I would imagine if you were like prone to fainting, you likely wouldn't be taking a high intensity class like that. Right. This will make sense later. (laughs) Yes. But like, I just want to note that here. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't be able to do that. So a colleague of Tammy's named Shanna Miller saw Tammy the day before she died and said that she wasn't complaining about being sick. She wasn't coughing. And she also noted that the principal of the school that Tammy worked for basically put together Tammy's memorial, which is very sad. Yeah. Spencer Cook, who worked as the technology director for the Sugar Salem School District, was contacted to help check Tammy's email account for a particular day. And that day was June 29th of 2019. She had received 36 emails that week. And remember, that's summer break, too. So I guess they still have access to their account. Mm-hmm. Several of these emails were deleted, but six were saved. And he wanted to point out, too, that she knew computers well. So she knew how to save, delete, block, everything, right? Yeah. Well, one email that they found was from Charles Vallow. And he located it in the deleted folder. Something that was very interesting, though, is Charles's email address was blocked in her email and was the one and only email in the blocked section. Before we were recording, Amanda and I were talking about this. I would highly suspect that if she is checking her work email over summer break, she's likely doing it at home and probably leaving it logged in. There's not any like intensely confidential information during the summer. It's probably just administrative emails. So it probably would have been incredibly easy for Chad to go into her account. And even if she didn't stay logged in, they had been married for so long, he might be able to guess the password she typically uses. Yes. And remember, Charles had told Lori that he was going to contact Tammy. Yeah. So Lori could have easily been like, hey, Chad, this is coming. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So we still don't know if she actually opened that email, if she ever got to read it. Yeah. Officer Alyssa Greenhouse with Rexburg Police Department responded to the 911 call. And this is the call when Tammy died. She said that Chad seemed distraught. And Garth was quiet and reserved. She recalled that Chad said Tammy woke up coughing around midnight and then vomited. He helped her recover and then assisted her back to her bed. Around 5.45 in the morning, Tammy partially fell off the bed. Her feet and legs had gotten caught in the sheets. Her torso had fallen off the bed, but her head was on the floor. So it's like her feet and legs were up and the rest of her body was off is how I picture it. Yeah. Chad and his son moved the body back onto the bed and covered her with blankets. And that's exactly how Officer Greenhalge found her. When the officer was asked during the questioning if she asked Chad why he waited 20 minutes to call 911, she said that she didn't specifically ask that. And that was interesting because I was like, yeah, like, why didn't he call immediately when he, like, touched Tammy for the first time when she fell out of the bed? Why wasn't that the first thing? Again, I've never been in that situation. I don't know how my brain would function. But that is interesting that he waited a while. Also because he is not a person who doesn't work in the death industry. Yes. I feel like a person who doesn't normally deal with death might be a little bit different. But I don't know. It's true. That's true. Chad told her that Tammy hated to see the doctor and had fallen in the driveway about a month prior. He didn't 
necessarily say anything about Tammy having fainting spells, but he did say that she had issues with her blood pressure. Garth never contradicted anything Chad said and didn't really offer any more information to deputies. The officer took photos and shared them with the court, and one photo shows some reddish-pink foam in Tammy's mouth, and it was running down her cheek. And we had heard that before in one of the articles with an interview from Emma Daybell, so that was interesting. The officer also said that Tammy had a small bruise on her arm. Blake followed up with some questions and asked if it appeared that Tammy had only been dead for about 10 to 20 minutes. And she answered no, that it appeared that she had been dead longer than that. And that's because her body was cold to the touch. Oh, no. Yeah. So, Cammy Wilmore, the deputy coroner for Fremont County, was the first person from the coroner's office to respond because she just happened to be closer. After she was on the scene, she had touched Tammy and she realized that Tammy had been dead for a while because, again, she was cold and her body was stiff. Wilmore believed that she had been dead for actually hours. And she said she was 49. So this was unusual because she's not that old. I was looking for things on her neck, bruising, scratches, those kinds of things. She had bruises on her forearm, but they didn't look new. And Wilmore also wondered what had caused that foam and thought it could have been congestive heart failure. She'd never been to a scene where she'd seen that kind of pink foam. And it was so bizarre that she looked up on her phone poisoning. That caught my attention. I was like, that's really interesting for someone yeah. who that's kind of their job mm-hmm. to uh, question like that. Yes. Yes. And so Brenda Dye then came and she was the coroner. She said that there was blood tinge sputum coming from Tammy's mouth, which is that foam. And so that would explain why it was pink is because there was blood in it. Yeah. She also noted that she saw a kitchen hand towel that Chad had used to wipe Tammy's face to get rid of the foam, but it just kept coming out of her mouth. There was lividity on Tammy's back. And and that's basically where the blood pulls at the lowest point of the body because the blood has stopped circulating. Basically, if it pulls on the back, that means that the person was lying on their back because that was the lowest part of their body. Her head wasn't down. She was on her back when she died. And also, I don't know how you would fall out of the bed then if you were laying flat on your back. Yeah, at one point, I don't think we mentioned it in our outline, but he says like, oh, I might have done it when I pulled the covers because she was wrapped so strange that it oh interesting knocked her off. Yeah. But like, that, it's still nothing makes sense. Yeah. So Wilmer asked Chad more information about Tammy's health. And I recall that, quote, he had said she had been feeling really off lately, like she wasn't in her body. And he also had said that she was having some fainting episodes, including one at the temple where she had passed out on the floor. And this is so weird to me because I've mentioned it before that I went to Rexburg when the kids were still missing, but after Tammy had died. And one of the people I spoke with, either their spouse or someone they knew, was in the Relief Society with Tammy and said that she was just fine. And I feel like that would have been the opportunity to say, if she fainted at church, you would think a decent amount of people probably would have seen it and probably talked about it. So even if someone wasn't there, they probably would have heard about it. And I never heard anything like that. Yeah. Not saying that it couldn't have happened, but that would probably be like the talk of the town, you know, in a way. Like if someone passed out and then their name's all over the news, they would have been like, oh, yeah, and they passed out. Yeah. But even like not in like a an talk of the town kind of gossip way, if you are in a close knit religious community and someone publicly faints at temple, I would imagine that people would be worried about her and be checking in on her. And so, like, people would then tell each other and people would be, like, community-wise aware of it. Well, yeah, yeah, obviously. Like, everyone loved her. I didn't speak to any of, like, her close friends or anything like that. But people that have met her before and they're like, she was always really nice and really sweet. It's more just her name was out there everywhere. So, like, they were all discussing all their interactions that they had with her. And that would have been one that would have come up. Again, the people may not have known. I don't know. But. Just interesting that I didn't hear about it when I was there. So Chad also added that Tammy had been feeling off and fell outside and that she went to the doctor, even though she hates doctors, and had had a sprain on her wrist and that she, as a result of this, was prescribed tramadol and had taken all the medication. There was no pill bottle in the house, though. Di estimated that the time of death was between 12.30 a.m. and 2 a.m. based on rigor mortis and lividity. She also mentioned to Chad that there might be an autopsy, and immediately he told her he didn't feel it was necessary, 
and that Emma was very adamant about not having an autopsy done. She also said that Emma was against it because she didn't want it done to her mom. And what's really interesting, right, is that we know that Di doesn't perform an autopsy, right? She's like taking Chad's word for it. She's taking his decision. And so she's also going with his version of events, but she's also not going with his version of events. She's questioning. She's questioning it, but she's not pushing for an autopsy. It doesn't feel like she's fully believing it, but she's believing it enough to not do an autopsy. Yeah. So Laurie's attorney, Jim Archibald, then asked I, Chad Dayball convinced you and the deputy and the investigator that nothing bad happened. And that's just very interesting because, but it seems like they're trying to be like, even law enforcement was fooled by Chad. Yeah, that's kind of the feeling I got when I read it earlier, because I was like, Mm -hmm. that wording is just, it stood out and just, oh, he convinced you and this and this. Mm -hmm. But we all know he's very convincing. And he's, he has to be some sort of charming, right? Like everyone liked him. Yeah. So weird. Yeah. So eventually an autopsy was performed in December of 2019. And when it was, Di attended it. When asking more questions about the phone, the prosecutor Blake said, if she had fallen out of bed, would you expect to see foam dripping somewhere else or in a different direction? Which I thought was very astute. And I said, yes. When Di attended that autopsy, the medical examiner determined that the cause of death was asphyxiation and that the manner of death was homicide. And Di did not dispute it. She intends to modify her original death certificate because the original death certificate said that pulmonary edema was a matter of death and it was natural causes. At the time of us recording this, we're relying on a lot of notes from other people who have attended today. So we haven't been able to hear this particular bit of testimony because there is an interesting portion where they talk about why she hasn't already changed it. And we'll include it when we do a future update. But just as a note, like there's an irregularity in there that's a little bit weird. So we're going to fully shift now, talk about some of the people in Lori's life that testified. And the first one is April Raymond, her friend from Hawaii. And she talked about a great many things, but I think there were only two new things that we heard. A lot of it was stuff we already knew, but that have to be said on the record because the jury's not supposed to know a damn thing. So apparently Lori had told April Raymond that she was, quote, done with JJ, which when I say it, it's like a fucking just like punch to my chest because there was never that need. There were people who were ready to love him. Right, right. Multiple people. Yeah. And that additionally, Lori had tried to convince April to abandon her children and join the 144,000. And she had even said something to the extent of like, your purpose in your children's life is fulfilled. That's so weird. Fucking and we heard weird. a little bit from April before in one of her interviews long ago. Mm-hmm. But it's just the wording was very strange. Like that she's, yeah. she's fulfilled. Yeah, that, that was new. Yeah. And she also very clearly was like, not a fan of these new beliefs. No, not at all. She thought it was weird. And also she's like, I'm not abandoning my children. Yeah. So a person that we were waiting for for a while to hear from was David Warwick. And he had a lot to say. David shared that he had listened to some of Gibbs' testimony and read an article about Zulema and Alex's marriage. And there's some question, like, if he could still testify, because that's against the rules. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, he was allowed to testify. He described how and when he met Lori, how he turned Chad down when asked to write a book with him. And I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. (laughs) During his trip to Rexburg, which was from September 20th to the 23rd, we learned a lot more about what happened. And he reviewed his interactions with JJ, and it seemed like JJ wouldn't even like talk to him or interact with him at all. He questioned some of the things that Chad tried to teach him, too, which I thought was very interesting because he's the only one so far that's outright said, like, when he said something, I thought it was a little strange that it wasn't coming from church leaders, just Chad. He talked about a heavenly spiritual building that Chad and Lori described to him. Like, they took him somewhere and they described this place that was not there. And they're like, no, it's a spiritual thing. He said at one point, like, I kind of went along, but like, what? 
Yeah. He also talked about a strange conversation that he had with Chad about Tammy when she was still alive. He was like, is she a good wife? And that's where Chad was like, oh, she's going to die early. David also talked about the podcast recording during his trip, the last time he actually saw JJ, and what he describes as one of the worst nightmares of his life. And I found this really interesting because... That was the last night that JJ was seen alive. And David and Melanie Gibb were staying at Lori's. Hmm. And he said that that night in the very early hours of the morning, but after midnight, he had that nightmare. And it was very real to him. Gibb even heard him screaming in his sleep and tried to wake him up. Hmm. Then she thought it would be a good idea to go and get Lori so that they could call Chad for a blessing. And Melanie Gibb went to go get Lori. But interestingly, she did not respond. Suspicious. I question if she was even home. Yeah, that's very fair. So the next morning when they woke up, they went downstairs to say goodbye because that's the day they were leaving. And that's when Lori said, you know, JJ had that, I'll call it an episode. And Lori had called Alex to come take care of him. And if you don't remember, that was where she said he was like climbing the cabinets, knocking over the picture of Jesus and up on top of the fridge, just a lot. And David recalls that he did not see any signs that the cabinets were damaged, there was no marks, and there wasn't any marks on the stainless steel fridge. So, like, if he was climbing wildly all over the kitchen, you would think that something... Something was going on. Shown. Yeah. So that made me really nervous when he, you know, talked about that night and that morning, of course, because we know during their podcast recording, that's when Alex brought JJ supposedly sleeping in, right? Yeah. And just breaks my heart. So another person that we heard from was Colby Ryan. And remember, that's Lori's oldest son. This was a hard one. Yes, it really was. It was very sad. And he shared that he was not paid for his participation in the Netflix series, which I didn't expect. I thought he would have been paid for that. I would have thought so, too. Because that was like pretty well watched. I think it made it up there for a little bit. Yeah. He also testified about if Lori had taught him about Jesus And he said yes. And then they asked, well, has she ever brought up multiple probations, past lives, castings, dark and light scales, anything like that, or her being a goddess? And he didn't know about that. The thing that was really, really sad was there's this intense recording that was played. And it was a recording of Colby and Lori. And it took place after JJ and Tylee had been found. And they played that for the court. And in the call, it's very clear that Colby thinks Lori was involved in their deaths. And Lori says that Jesus is still on her side, but he is yelling at her. He's he's very passionate. And she's just like, so calm. And ugh, it's disgusting. There's also a point when she says, like, only they and I know what happened. I would say, like, this is the first time where you really hear her say, I know what happened. Because up until now, she's saying they're safe, they're safe, they're safe to people. Mm -hmm. And then it switches to only I and they know what happened. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Yeah. And another thing that happened during that day that a lot of people that were physically there noticed is that there were some breaks in the testimony where Colby was still up on the stand and Lori was staring at him and he like refused to look at her. And I felt really bad for him because even during this call, like, He had finished, technically, Mm -hmm. before the call. And then they called him back in, just in case they had questions. And I was so sad because at the end, they're like, no questions. So, like, he just had to, like, sit there and relive that, you know, time of his life for literally no reason. And it just made me so sad for him. I also do think that as many opportunities as we can get for people to not look at Lori in the fucking face... I'm there for because it it speaks to the jury and also it lets her know that she is alone and is garbage, you know? Yeah. So the state also called Summer Shiflet. And again, that's Lori's sister. Her testimony is one of the ones that we were really interested to hear. So here are some of the things that she said. So she said that in late 2018, Alex and Lori began talking about their past lives to her. Summer recounted being like, I want to believe you, but this just doesn't make sense. When she was like talking about this and Summer noted that Laurie changed after she met Chad and that she had never heard Laurie mention zombies, but she did hear Laurie talking about casting out evil spirits. When Laurie talked to Summer about light and dark scales, 
that was the first time that she had heard about that ideology as a part of their religion or in general. She was concerned about these beliefs, but she didn't know what to do. And what sucks is I don't think she did anything. I don't know if at that point Laurie was too bought in for her to have done something, but like, oof. Yeah, that and Charles did try, right? Like we've, mm-hmm. we've seen that body cam footage of him pleading for help. Yeah, and her other brother, Adam. Mm-hmm. So Summer said that she was active entirely in JJ's lives, but that she didn't even know they were missing until December of 2019. And that in February of 2020, Laurie had told her that the kids were safe and she knew where they were. Per Summer, when she found out that JJ and Tylee were dead, she said, I I felt lied to and my trust in my sister was broken. So a recording of a video call between Laurie and Summer from June of 2020, after the children were found, was admitted into evidence and played for the jurors. As it played, Laurie looked down. In the video, Summer expresses how emotionally wrecked and devastated she is by J.J. and Tylee's death and her anger at Laurie for the children's death and for Laurie not telling her that they had died. That really seemed like a big part to me when I was listening to it. It was like, it's not even just that they're gone. It's that you didn't tell me that I had to find out like this. And one of the other big quotes that we were like, huh, that's weird, was in there too. Yes. Because... Lori says something along the lines of like, nobody's seen me on the floor crying. No one knows what I've been through with my children. And that, and then she's like, that I love more than anything. And then Summer's like, Lori, you were dancing on a beach with a smile on your face, taking wedding photos. Lori's response to that was, yeah, months later. Months later, you're completely fine. It, it's monstrous. It really is. And also, it's less than a month later mm-hmm. that she got married. But remember, Lori thought that her kids were zombies. And once you turn into a zombie, as we talked about in our last update, I want to say, once you turn into a zombie, you're not there anymore. You're dead. Yeah, like you're already dead. So she thought of them as dead months before, which is really heartbreaking. Yeah. And that also goes to the fact that in 2020, that is still what she was thinking. Oh, yeah. Because by then she had been in like behind bars and had been separated from Chab. I always wonder, too, like, how did she treat them? You know, like. Before they died, because she thought that it wasn't them. Like, were, was she treating them poorly as well? It just breaks my heart. I think about it too much. Yeah, I, I hope she wasn't. I would say it's gut-wrenching to listen to this call. It is. Summer is sobbing, understandably so. And she even says, like, we would have taken them. Everyone would have. You could have gone off and lived whatever life you wanted. You didn't, you didn't have to do this during the call. She's also begging for Laurie to give her some sort of explanation. It's very clear that she wants to continue to love and believe in her sister, but she's at a point where she can't do that if she doesn't hear why. And Laurie's like, I can't tell you, which she shouldn't on a call give any details like that. No, I was like, she made her lawyer proud that day. She did. Summer also talked about how Alex made decisions like a teenager. She attributed this to injuries he had sustained in a car accident when he was 16. So basically, like, he was still making decisions like he was a 16-year-old. Yeah. And on cross-examination, Archibald asked Summer if she could imagine her sister wanting to kill her children. And Summer, while crying, said no to both of those questions. Felt really bad for her that day. That's sad. Yeah. And speaking of sad, it's about to get worse. Yeah, this is hard. This is really hard. So we're going to discuss the day that JJ and Tylee's remains were found, which was June 9th of 2020. And more information that we've learned about their deaths and their burials. Just as a note, this is our last section. So if you can't hear gruesome details, this is the end for you. Thank you for creeping with us. Yes. So this was even hard for us. We read the information first and then we try to listen to it. And even just reading it, I was like, this is a lot. This is a lot to take in. There's photos that were shown. And they were reflecting that JJ and Tylee's burial sites were both visible from one of Chad's upstairs bedrooms. Law enforcement officers discussed the search of Chad's property and provided more detail on how Tylee and JJ's remains were unearthed. They also discussed the rocks and the planks over JJ's remains and the contrast between Tylee and JJ's burials and methods of what they did. I thought that was interesting. Well, it's very different. It's yes. a thousand percent different. There's nothing overlapping. Yeah. There's some things overlapping, but not how they were found and not right, how they right. were killed. Of course. Yeah. 
So we're first going to talk about Tylee. Steve Daniels of the FBI said they sifted through the burial site so they could recover all of her remains. And Tylee's remains were melted together in the ground. They took photos of the site as they went so that they could try to figure out what had happened to Tylee. When they were collecting the remains, they were unclear whether it was one person or two because there were so many pieces. Eventually, Daniels asked for an inventory of which parts they had recovered. And they also noticed that the tools in Chad's shed were dirty and could potentially have evidence. They even showed a close-up photo of a pickaxe with material on the blade. Just gives me like chills. My stomach flips. Mm -hmm. During the testimony, Lori looked down and just was writing in her notebook. Dr. Garth Warren testified. He's the coroner for Ada County. He said that Tylee's cause of death was labeled homicide by unspecified means. It's because we can't tell how she died. And it's very, very clear she was killed. Mm -hmm. And this next part just broke my heart because this like sweet teenage girl was left to only be three separate sealed bags. That's how they received her remains. It's just three bags. Yeah. I look at a picture of her that I'm like, well, how, how could someone do that? I don't understand how she wasn't vomiting during this. Like, I think that if somebody was talking about somebody who I love in this way, they were melted in the ground and their bags because like they're pieces. How are you not physically ill? How are you keeping your composure? Because even if she wasn't looking, she could hear. How do you not just fall apart? I, I do think that I would throw up if a child who I have known their entire life, this is how people were talking about them. Yeah. And if I can remember right, they talked about JJ the morning and then the afternoon they talked about Tylee. And I don't believe the Woodcocks even could sit through JJ's. Like they weren't there the morning. Yeah. Horrific. So Tylee was reduced to three bags. Two were body bags and one was a large brown paper bag that was sealed. As you know, we've been discussing, Tylee was in so many pieces and in like different types of pieces is the best way I can put it. Investigators say that they found at least 100 pieces of bone, as well as partial and complete organs, and all of them were analyzed during the autopsy. And her autopsy took a while because there's so much. Mm -hmm. And I think they actually did her autopsy second, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And during the search, they couldn't find anything that would suggest how she was killed. Like they were looking for bullets or a portion of a knife or just anything to show how she died. They couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. Skeletal muscle was sent for testing, and it's because it had nothing else to test. It was positive for ibuprofen, uh, a common decompositional product. Also, carboxyhemoglobin. So carboxyhemoglobin is often associated with fire. And what was said is, if that is breathed in and the person is alive, you'll get high levels of it. That's why they did the test. In this particular case, though, with Tylee, the level came back extremely low. So there's no evidence to support that Tylee was alive when she was burned. And so, I mean, that's like a tiny, tiny bit of good news in a sense. Like she wasn't burned alive, but still we don't know what happened to her. They also found iron when they did her testing. Dr. Angie Christensen shared details of her examination of Tylee's bones. And she included that there was carnivore activity on one bone. And that a sharp tool was used on some of her bones, particularly her pelvic area. Alarming. And there's a lot of photos and diagrams as to, you know, her findings. Her testimony was split between two days. And on the second day, she talked about the sharp impacts to them. And when she was talking, you know, uh, like I said, a lot about the pelvis, impacts were inconsistent with dismemberment. So she was talking about like when the typical person, unfortunately, this is gross, but dismember someone where a lot of those like breaks and impacts and things would be. And this is different. And Dr. Christensen, when she was talking about like how it's not typical dismemberment, she said typically sharp trauma and dismemberment cases appear around joints. And what she was showing on her images were not consistent with dismemberment because they are not near the joints. The purpose of dismemberment is to break the body into smaller pieces. And in this case, with Tylee, all the sharp traumas are in the area of the pelvic region. And Lindsay and I have talked a lot about this because we're like, why? And there's there's a lot of reasons that we've theorized. There's a lot of reasons that I've seen online that people have theorized, like 
just how big the bone is all the way to what might have happened to her. And it's just, it, it's horrific. And we may never even know. Douglas Halapaska discussed how casting works. And I thought that was fascinating. And how they use it to determine what tool might have been used to damage Tylee's bones. So it's like they they put something in or around the bone that'll harden, and then they have like an impression. It's very interesting. He was not sure the exact tool that was used, but he said that they use stabbing and chopping actions. That also just made my stomach flip. Yeah. And interestingly, he was not given the tools that were seized from Chad's property. And he was asked about that, like, well, did you use the actual tools? And he's like, no, I didn't have access to those. But my guess is because they were sent to be analyzed. So like, you can't do two things at once. That makes sense. And we're going to talk about their analysis in a bit. David Sincerbo tested a small can from Chad's property too. And he shared that it contained gasoline. And he went into specifically how you test for that. And it was a lot. Detective Chuck Kudasitis was called again. So this is the second time he's testified. Interesting. Yeah. And what he discussed this time was some satellite images over Chad's property. And I thought this was really interesting because it's like, I want to say it was every seven days that the satellite would get images of Chad's property because they have images of all of our properties. And one specifically was from September 9th of 2019, which that date is believed to be the day that Tylee was killed and buried. And the image is less than an hour after police know Alex left the property. Oh. So like, oh my gosh, had they like gotten an image of the actual event? Yeah. Very close. It's so close. It's so close. So when they found JJ's remains, there were rocks and boards over his remains. And they were like, this is bizarre and like checked underneath of it. But what's interesting is that they were there for a purpose. And that's because when human remains decompose, there's actually a sinking in the soil. Quote, if there's a berm to it, it will level out over time. So with that thing on top, it'll level out versus it just dipping down. Right. And that's interesting because... Chad knows how to bury a body. Yes. Right? Like, he worked in a cemetery. So, I just, in my head, I don't see Alex knowing all of the ins and outs of burying bodies. Mm-hmm. But y'all know that Chad knew that. Yes. Yes. And again, Dr. Garth Warren was involved in the autopsy. And he said that JJ's cause of death was asphyxia by plastic bag over the head and duct tape covering the mouth. And that there were signs of a struggle for JJ. There was an abrasion on the left side of JJ's neck, and there was also bruising where that duct tape was. Later on in his testimony, they talk about whether it was before or after he died that that bruising occurred, and he said that bodies cannot bruise when there's no blood circulation, so those are pre-mortem injuries. And this is the worst version of how he died, because I know that like when we talked about this before, I was like, oh gosh, I hope that I hope this was like a preventative measure for their like crazy fucking beliefs, and not what they did to this poor boy. Because he must have been so scared. Yeah, yeah. The This day was the hardest day, I think, in the whole trial, is hearing that he struggled. You know, because like, like she said, we talked about it. And we were like, hopefully they gave him something to sleep. You know, like, hopefully he was knocked out. Hopefully he didn't know what was happening to him. And now we know that that's not the case and that they are just absolute fucking monsters. It is bad enough that they killed them. They didn't have to do this, but they didn't have to do this Mm -hmm. there are gentler ways for a person to pass yes okay we're going to continue on to this so when they were examining jj they didn't have samples of blood or urine for toxicology because of the advanced state of decomposition so that this what they did was they used the liver samples and they found low levels of ethanol which is alcohol a drug called ghb which is gamma hydroxybutyric acid and when asked a follow-up question about the amount of GHB, uh, Dr. Warren said, there's really no way for me to tell whether it's just a naturally occurring product in the body that was there or if JJ was given it. I can't say one or another based on the levels. And I keep seeing like headlines that are like, JJ was given like a, what people call a date rape drug. And I think it's re- referring to this, but yeah. we don't know whether that's the case. Yeah. I mean, it is possible that the struggling that he did was before his cause of death and that he was just like, I don't want to be duct taped. That is completely possible. So perhaps he was drugged after that point. 
He also had caffeine and theobromine, which can be found in cocoa and tea. Photos of JJ's autopsy were not shared with the entire court, but they were shown on the monitors that were in front of the prosecution, the defense, the judge, and the jury. And that's because they were so gruesome. One of the jurors cried when they were looking at the photos. And per Nate Eaton of East Idaho News, it also looked like Lori was crying. So this next part is fucking ridiculous. It's just fucking ridiculous. And it's a little bit alarming. Yes. Thomas, one of Laurie's attorneys, during cross-examination, asked Warren if he had collected samples from inside of J.J.'s sinuses. And Warren said no. Then Thomas said how he came to the conclusion that J.J. was smothered with a plastic bag. And Warren said J.J. was found with a plastic bag over his head. It was duct taped tightly. He was bound. There was evidence of a struggle. And there was no other explanation of why he was dead. And I will say, like, I think that we often assume that you can immediately tell why a person has died. But in some instances, it's situational. Like, for example, with drownings, it is often where you are an absence of like a gunshot wound or very clear heart issues. It's kind of like, if nothing else, an in-water drowning. So I can see how they're saying here, if nothing else... And this horrific circumstance, we're going to assume it was this horrific circumstance. Right. So they went back and forth where Thomas was asking him more questions. And there was a little bit of tone back and forth. But at one point, Thomas says, I'm going based on things I've seen in movies and whatnot. And Warren's response was, that's scary. And like, yeah, it is scary because that's a weird thing for a defense attorney to say. It is. And just to question an expert. You know, like, I understand that he's kind of supposed to be a little condescending and make it sound like they don't know what they're doing. That's his whole Mm -hmm. job. Yeah. Yeah. But this guy knows what he's talking about. It caught me off guard listening to it because I was like, what a weird interaction. It was out of place. It was out of place. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also interesting at this point because of all of the experts for them to question This is a weird way of questioning them because we've seen lots of cases where they say, why didn't you do this method? Why didn't you do it like this? Based on procedures, why didn't you do it like this? Could it have been this? Could it have been that? And the fact that they did not do all of those very reasonable maneuvers tells me that they are not applicable here. So he had to go for like low hanging, weird arguments. This was the best he could do. Or he's like not a great attorney. And given the fact that like, why he is her counsel, I would imagine that they want the most effective counsel. I think that it's just, what else are they going to say it is? Yeah. So Tara Martinez discussed latent prints and processed plastic and duct tape from JJ. So when they were processing them, they found two prints that matched Alex Cox. Which wasn't a big surprise. Yeah, that's not surprising. But it is damning. It's official. Like, we knew... But now we know, no. Well, all I keep playing in my head is that fall guy talk with Zulema over and over again. Mm-hmm. I'm also surprised that's all they found. Because if they're dealing with duct tape, I'm surprised they only got that one. I think it's because of the time and the decomposition would be my guess. Yeah. I would also say and like to point out that they have boatloads of evidence. Like so much evidence, right? They don't have to present everything. They don't have to include everything. They have to provide it to the other side, but they don't have to bring it up organically. So it could be that they found other prints and that they're just not bringing them up yet. And it could be that maybe they're going to wait till Chad's trial to talk about that. Interesting. Because I don't think it's in the prosecution's best interest to have two people there at the death site that aren't Laurie. So just an interesting thing to keep in mind that we're talking about really horrific evidence and we're talking about things that we found. That doesn't mean there's that other things weren't. There are some prints, too, that she wasn't like she got some of a print, but wasn't able to use it for whatever reason. So Rylene Nolan from the IPS lab that looked at the DNA samples tested samples from Tylee and JJ to confirm that they were who we thought they were. And they used a biological parent from each. Catherine Dace tested several items from the crime scene at Chad's property, including duct tape, plastic, swabs, and 18 hand tools. And Tylee's DNA was found on some of those tools. Amanda and I, we you know, always talking about this case, but we we're talking earlier about how like they didn't even bother to clean off those tools, right? They were visibly dirty when they found them. And that's wild to me. Yeah. 
Also, there was a swab taken from Lori's apartment wall that I did not see that they knew whose blood it was, but it was positive for blood. Yeah, they said a faint positive. And this was her apartment in Rexburg, Idaho. Right. This was the apartment where the children would have been last. Yeah. And I want to say there was a question that came up too, like, could someone have been moved before? Mm -hmm. You know, like maybe they didn't die there. So yeah, I'm sure we'll find out more. It's just horrific earning it in these segments because you'll hear from someone, they'll give you a little bit of detail. Mm -hmm. And then the next person's adding more detail. And then they're like, here's the DNA and here's every piece of everything we found. And you're like, oh, no. So when you're painting the picture of this, it's tiny details and then putting them all together to get these big details. Yeah. And they're all horrific and very, very sad. They're all horrific. It's all terrible. However, it's these details that will hopefully put Laurie away for life and get Chad the death penalty, baby. Right, right. Uh, all I keep thinking is that. And interestingly, he has a hearing coming up mm-hmm. uh, when this is released, the week of this release. So we'll see what goes on with that. Yeah, I would be surprised if he wasn't trying to do a plea deal. Absolutely. Like, uh, what is there to stand on? I don't understand how this isn't a plea deal. I don't understand how they've gotten this far because you can do a plea deal at any time. Yeah. And I mean, like, she could also come in and decide to change her plea. My guess is as of right this moment, other than coordinating, and she's obviously in charge of her own children, Mm -hmm. right? And allowed it to happen and knew that it happened because in those recorded calls, you know that she knows, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But also, we haven't really heard anything that shows that she was physically there yet, that she had any part in it. And so, like, the conspiracy and the fraud are there for sure. But we don't know some of the other stuff. Maybe she's waiting. Maybe she's just still thinking she's above the world, you know? Saying this as a person who, like, really understands how it works, right? I don't think the jury's going to fucking care. Oh, no. I don't see how they could. I don't think so either. Right? No. You are either fully involved in every step or you were incredibly reckless and culpable. And I'm not saying that that equals the charges that she's saying and that it meets the the elements. I'm just saying understanding jury instruction and each element and all of that well, I would have a hard time being like, I give a fuck. Yeah. That is part of the downside of having a jury trial is that the jury can go, fuck you. Because in a bench trial, it truly is based on your arguments. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit less emotion in it. But in a jury trial, there's going to be just so much incredible bias against her for all of this. And the fact that these people are going onto the stand and not looking her in the eyes. And the fact that for good or for worse, for whatever, she's not acting as grieved as you would imagine a person would be in these situations. Okay, she's crying for JJ. Like, first off, fuck you. Cry for both of your children. Secondly, again, I... <laughs> I don't understand how she is composed. And Amanda and I were talking about this. I was like, if I, I would hope that if she is on some type of medication to calm herself down so she can be mentally present so that she can assist in her defense, that they actually talk about that at some point. Because otherwise, it's a little heartless to me. Or not heartless, but not heartful enough. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't go over every single detail that was found, especially with Tylee. They, they went through like every piece just about. Yeah. Yeah. All of it has been horrific. And we'll find out maybe she will eventually try for a plea after she hears what Chad does at the end of the week. You know, I would also be interested in whether she's going to testify. I see no reason to think that she wouldn't try to get up on the stand and charm everyone. I mean, she could, but I don't think her lawyers. I mean, I guess they've told her not to do things and she's done it that way already. So. It's not their decision. Who could know? Well, I know, but maybe they could be persuasive enough to be like, please don't do this to yourself. Look, they were like, if you waive your right to a speedy trial, you will have a better defense. And she was like, don't care. Yeah. So to me, if she does that, I am so thoroughly not going to assume that she's going to make things that are in her best legal interest. This is purely speculation. But do you think maybe Chad had a hand in that persuading her? I don't see how he could have because they haven't had any communication and they would have had to have like planned that out beforehand. They haven't had communication with each other. No. But had they had phone conversation with someone who overlaps, you know, between them? I don't know. I am also so incredibly intrigued by who we haven't heard from yet. And that's Melanie with an I, her niece. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot coming up. I think she is going to have some stuff to say. I think they're going to keep her for last. I think she's going to flip in a big way. Yeah. I think that she's either going to, one, be one of the most damning and last prosecution witnesses, or she's going to be a witness for the defense. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, she's the last one in the puzzle where I'm like, I wonder which direction she's going to take it. Yes. So we will be posting at the end of each day with a little recap of what happened in court. We will occasionally do these episodes to update you when we want to discuss some of the things happening and when we do have the time to do so. We are still doing our shorts every Friday as well. So we have some fun episodes coming up. If you have any questions about the case or even suggestions for other cases to follow, reach out to us through social media or through our website. We'd be happy to look at it. And with that, I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. And as always, a special thank you to our patrons who support us via Patreon. Please see the link in our show notes to learn more about how you, yes, you, can begin to haunt the dump, guard vortexes, or even become a scorching Sasquatch. Also in our show notes, you can find the link to our website, more information on our sources, our social media handles, and our merch store. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps and or ghosts. I beg of you. (laughs) 